Listeners, it's Sam here again, and just the usual shout out for our brilliant sponsors before this week's show. Paces Ahead have courses for the start of 2024, and listeners, here's a possible sweetener for you. I will be there at their first course of 2024. That's the 16th to the 19th of January. Please do come along and say hi if you catch me. It would be great to meet some of you if you're there. But there is also a course the following week from the 20th to the 23rd of January for those of you sitting in the first diet of 2024. Not only that, but they also have courses lined up for May as well. The 20th to the 23rd of May and the 28th to the 31st of May. I highly recommend booking on early to avoid disappointment. They very regularly get oversubscribed. If you can't make a course though, past tests have got you covered with their market-leading online revision paces resource. I think most pacer sitters would agree this is more or less essential to have to complement your ward-based preparation. So to get access, just click any of the links in the show notes labelled past test. But enough on that for now, let's get started on this week's episode. Welcome listeners to the second part of our best bits of the Pre-Paces podcast from 2023. We are well into 2024 now and so our upcoming episodes will start the year off with a bang. We have got some fantastic guests lined up already and I'm so excited to bring them to you through the course of the year. But before we get into the second part of our best bits of 2023, the final Buy Me A Coffee Legends of 2023 this week. Thank you firstly to Tom Purvis, an anaesthetic reg who attempted paces with a last-ditch roll of the dice and got that all-important pass. So congratulations, Tom, and thank you for the donation. Thank you as well to SJ George, to Coot, Catherine, to Luke, to T, and to Lizzie, all of whom recently passed. Thank you and best of luck to George, who donated after his second attempt before he got his results. George, we've got absolutely everything crossed for you. And I have to say again, I'm honestly so grateful and so touched for all of the kind words that you guys have sent in and your generous donations to keep the podcast going. It really does go a long way to motivate me to keep producing the podcast. And I'm really, really grateful. But right now, let's get into the second half of our best bits of 2023. And in our first highlight of this episode, we welcomed along Dr. Alex Thompson, honorary consultant in neurology and clinician scientist researching in the field of motor neurone disease. Now, Alex is one of those people where what he doesn't know about motor neurone disease probably is not worth knowing. And I absolutely loved this episode. But this clip I felt was particularly pertinent to PACES. And it's where we discussed the differential diagnosis of motor neurone disease. Well, I think that's a brilliant segue to take us into our differential diagnosis. So as uh, as we've already said, it's, it's unusual and there are only a, a set few things which may uh, cause you to observe mixed upper and lower motor neurone signs. It, and more or less, it is pathognomonic of MND. But Alex, can you can you give us any 
differential diagnoses and maybe um, any clues either in the history or the examination which might which might point us to more towards these differentials rather than uh, a motor neurone disease. So, so probably the number one differential that causes diagnostic problems is cervical spine disease. Yeah, so spondylotic myeloradiculopathy. So, someone where you've got wear and tear change in their cervical spine it's causing spinal cord compression and nerve root compression that can give you upper and lower motor neuron signs in the upper limbs upper motor neuron signs in the lower limbs and so that that can cause diagnostic confusion that really you expect to see sensory involvement in that condition so not having sensory involvement would make you wonder about whether it's motor neuron disease you know i mentioned a couple of other things so one of the principles in the neurological examination that you can apply is trying to get above the level of the lesion. Yeah. And you can do that with the reflexes. So this is partly where the, where the Georgia comes in. So if you've got someone who you think, well, could it be motor neuron disease? Could it be, could it be cervical spine disease, but they've got a Georgia that would push you more in the direction of um, thinking that this is motor neuron disease. And again, neck weakness. So cervical spine disease shouldn't cause neck weakness. So that, that, that I think is the number one situation where, confusion is likely to arise. There are a couple of rare pure motor neurological diseases that um, that we encounter in, in the MND clinic. Mostly they're extremely rare. So there are some immune neuropathies that can sometimes be bona fide motor neuron disease mimics, something called multifocal motor neuropathy, extremely rare immune uh, neuropathy. That condition, um, aside from being much rarer than motor neuron disease, the age of the typical patient tends to be younger. The weakness tends to be very focal. They shouldn't have upper motor neuron signs. They might have fasciculations, but we'd expect them to be focal. Typically, it involves the upper limbs and causes a finger drop. So it's often this sort of finger drop of the middle two fingers, but that's the classical presentation. You don't expect to really see significant wasting in that condition. And you can, you know, you can have other immune neuropathies that can mimic it as well. So, so that is a pure low motor neuron disease, multifocal motor neuropathy or conduction block neuropathy is it's sometimes known as. There are other lower motor neuron mimics. So there are some hereditary neuropathies, motor neuropathies. They tend to be distal, tend to be symmetrical. They're very slowly progressing. They're pure low motor neuron. But, you know, and I'd be, I'd be very surprised if you encountered that. But, you know, thinking more about the sort of something that looks like Charcot-Marie tooth, but without sensor involvement. Is that, is that the same as um, Kennedy's disease? So it's not the same as Kennedy's disease, but Kennedy's disease, I mean, Kennedy's disease is a motor neuronopathy. So it's, it, I, I'm not sure that you'd really be criticised for, for saying that someone with Kennedy's has, has motor <laughs> neuron disease. It, it is an inherited disease. It affects men. It's X-linked. And it tends to be it tends to be onset of a similar age to people who develop motor neuron disease. So it's mostly men in their sort of fifties and sixties who have onset. Features that might point you towards thinking that something's Kennedy's is that tremor is often present. You can have a tremor in motor neuron disease. Ten percent of people with motor neuron disease will have a tremor. Gynecomastia is another feature that, that that points towards Kennedy's disease. But actually, often we will think of Kennedy's disease in somebody who has a relatively symmetrical, slower, slowly progressive motor neuron disease and we will quite often test for it so there's no there's no shame in thinking of kennedy's disease and testing for it but yeah i guess it has overlaps really with uh, with those hereditary neuropathies you could see that you might come a cropper with with some muscle things so i've occasionally when i've 
taught on PACES courses, seen people who have mistaken myotonic dystrophy for um, motor neuron disease. But the key things, big differences are, so myotonic dystrophy, type 1 myotonic dystrophy, typically is dis, you know, predominantly distal weakness, but there isn't much wasting in that condition. You have myotonia, which is obviously the hallmark feature, and you have all the other features of myotonic dystrophy, you know, the, 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 the typical facial appearance, ptosis, etc., which you don't see in motor neuron disease, and you don't get any upper motor neuron signs. It's very, myotonic dystrophy is very symmetrical in terms of the pattern of the weakness. And there are, you know, there are a few other hereditary myopathies and things that, that, you know, where you might think about them in your differential. And it's not unreasonable to, to consider when you've got a pure motor phenotype to think about whether something is muscle or, you know, the in terms of the localization, whether it's a sort of anterior horn cell problem or a, or a muscle problem. But you know, myopathies tend to be much more symmetrical. By and large, they're proximal, but there are some rare distal ones. Um, and you don't see significant wasting. Most, most of the time of those. Myasthenia we've kind of touched on already. You'd think of that more as a mimic if, you're, if you've got someone with, with problems in the bulbar territory. As I mentioned, if someone's got significant dysarthria, then uh, I'm not sure that it's entirely appropriate for them to be in paces if they've got myasthenia and they should probably be in hospital having some treatment or something. <laughs> Um, but, you know, the other clues would to, to look for are, again, ptosis, which might be variable, or diplopia, so, I'm, you know, any eye movement problems. Um, the pattern of weakness and, of course, the hallmark of fatigability that you see with myasthenia. Yeah, absolutely brilliant run through of all of the possible differential diagnosis for motor neuron disease. And uh... probably a couple more, actually. <laughs> Go for it. Yeah, yeah. So while, while, while we sort of think about it, there are uh, there are some pure upper motor neuron things as well. So hereditary spastic paraparesis, you might think of, you know, that's, again, someone middle-aged, slowly progressive, pure upper motor neuron spastic paraparesis. And then some of the more weird and wonderful spastic paraparesis. So, you know, conceivably primary progressive MS or something like that could cause a progressive paraparesis, adrenoleukodystrophy, which is a, there is a sort of small print one, but I think nobody in paces would be expected to know. Fantastic. And one other thing, I guess, when you're talking about muscle problems, one of those which I came across as a possible is inclusion body myositis as well. It's more of a muscle problem than a nerve problem, but would that fit into it anywhere? Yeah, no, so that's a very good thing to raise and actually can cause diagnostic difficulties. So IBM, again, is very rare. Uh, the typical, so common symptoms with that are foot drops. So people do get foot drop and, and, and thigh muscle weakness with that. It's slowly progressive. The really characteristic features, so, you know, again, you're going to be thinking about you shouldn't have upper motor neuron signs with IBM. You shouldn't have major muscle wasting with IBM, but you're allowed a bit of muscle wasting. The key... Um, area you get weakness which is fairly typical or even specific to IBM is we you get weakness of the long finger flexors yeah so if you have pronounced weakness of finger flexion without accompanying weakness elsewhere in the distal upper limbs that that is a red flag for for IBM but you know again that's a, a disease where you even think about it I think you're doing pretty well yeah absolutely it's difficult to uh it is difficult to fit all of these things into different boxes but as as we say naming them in your differential will just demonstrate to the examiners that you've got an understanding of the of the broad range of, of conditions which can lead to this this type of presentation
And we're going to stick with the neurology theme for the next highlight of 2023, where I welcomed back returning guest Dr. Tom Minton, neurology registrar in the Seven Deanery. And I invited Tom back to discuss Bell's palsy. This is a condition which can show up occasionally on the medical take, possibly as a possibly a differential for a stroke type presentation. But I love how Tom simplified this episode into its bare bones and I thought the most valuable clip here is just discussing the typical presenting pattern of Bell's palsy. So Tom, let's get into the main meat of it. We're talking about the presentation. So these patients, they've come in, they have a form of relatively acute facial weakness. What is the typical story of a patient who presents with a Bell's palsy? Well, um, I guess it could be considered as um, a Bell's palsy syndrome almost. So um, uh, although the most common presenting feature is that of a lower um, motor neuron facial nerve palsy, actually there are other clinical features that um, help you to point you towards a diagnosis of um, of Bell's palsy. The, the, the onset of, of facial weakness is, is typically very sudden so it's, it's usually over hours to days so it's usually within you know 48 to 72 hours or even less than that the patients will present um, and they'll present with um, facial weakness on uh, one side um, but also um, around 50% of patients will complain of um, post-auricular ear pain so if, if someone presents with pain behind, behind the ear followed by um, facial weakness it almost immediately makes you think of, of, of Bell's palsy. There are other clinical features associated with it. So around 30% of patients will describe altered taste, and that's in keeping with the um, the the, uh, the innovation to the anterior two-thirds of the, uh, of the tongue. Um, hyperacusis, so um, a small percentage of patients um, will um, uh, will complain of um, hyperacusis, and that's due to the innovation of stapedes. Um, and again, because of the parasympathetic nerve supply to the lacrimal glands and the um, uh, and 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 the tongue, as we've mentioned, uh, patients may complain of of dry eyes. Sorry, Tom, just to just to jump in there. So, just for the listeners who may not know, hyperacusis is is the symptom of of a heightened sensitivity to sound, isn't it? So they're they're hypersensitive to to noise. Yeah, that's right. That's absolutely right. And um, the key thing with uh, with Bell's palsy is that generally. Bell's palsy improves with time. So often with treatment or without treatment, the, the, the facial uh, weakness will improve usually within um, you know, six weeks to, to four months. Um, however, if it doesn't improve or if it's getting worse despite treatment, it should prompt you to think of other underlying diagnoses. Yeah, and I think one thing just to mention here for our listeners is that whilst we say the onset is sudden and we we understand that it's a lower motor neuron pattern we're going to be looking out for it's not as sudden onset as you might expect in for example a stroke-like presentation where someone has a facial droop absolutely yeah so in someone who presents with you know acute hyperacute onset facial weakness with forehead sparing and we'll go on to that um shortly um your immediate thought should be uh, you need to consider stroke and rule up stroke. Whereas the, the onset of, of Bell's palsy is typically more gradual over sort of hours um, to days. Yeah, fantastic. And I guess this is one thing. I, to be honest, Tom, I, 
looking at my research, I couldn't actually find any particular risk factors that there were for bells. Is there any particular preponderance or is there any modifiable or non-modifiable risk factors for bells? No, I mean, I guess um, the fact that it's um, considered idiopathic um, means that, you know, it's hard to identify uh, risk factors, but there are small um, cohort studies um, uh, which suggest things like uh, male sex, um, increased age, uh, um, uh, hypertension and um, and diabetes were associated with increased risk of, of Bell's palsy but um, it's difficult to know why that is really I'm not sure if that's just association rather than causation I guess Our next highlight is yet again stroke consultant Dr Paul Sellers from Southmead Hospital in Bristol, Paul was so generous with his time in this episode where we talked about calling stroke for the difficult decisions regarding thrombolysis and thrombectomy. We're going to start off with thrombolysis where I asked Paul about the criteria for thrombolysis using the NIHSS score and what would qualify someone to receive this important reperfusion therapy. So, Paul, we, the other thing which we ought to talk about before we come on to um, the procedure itself of giving thrombolysis is the assessment. So usually the NIHSS score is, is required when we're assessing these patients. So what sort of scores are we going to be looking out for? Or what's the cutoff for the NIHSS when we're, when we're assessing these patients? Yeah. So I guess I guess the first bit is the sort of rapid. I mean, people do it in different orders based on where the patient is on the way to the scanner. So there's no sort of set order. We don't have to necessarily do history examination, CT in the in the sort of it's just grabbing whatever you can whenever you can. So the collateral when the the ambulance are there asking the patient a couple of questions, possibly doing some of the NIHSS while they're in going into the scanner and then coming out of the scanner. But I guess from the history, what you want is, as we've said, that clear onset time that has to be crystal clear. There needs to be no doubt about it. You just want to know anything else that's happened, any major, other major illness, anything that would be contraindications, uh, so significant headaches, subarachnoid hemorrhage-like symptoms. You can go into sort of migraineous symptoms or seizures, but they wouldn't necessarily stop you thrombolizing, but would be important in that decision-making process. But the history is usually around sort of two or three minutes, five at tops, because you're just trying to get the broad things. With the NIHSS, you will be going through your score. And at the end, if they score four or more, those people, you should be strongly considering thrombolysis if they are in that four and a half hour marker. It's probably also worth saying at this stage that there's some caveats to that. So what we're talking about, the reason why four was chosen is it was considered that this would be more likely to be a disabling stroke. However, the way the NIHSS is set up, you can have severely disabling symptoms that don't quite reach that threshold of four on the on the NIHSS scale. Examples of these are things like hemianopia, uh, severe aphasia or severe neglect, which may only score sort of two to three, but would still be a thrombolizable deficit. 
the slight difficulty with this is it's slightly contextual because I guess what you're also wanting to know is what this person's prior function and how disabling that disabling symptom is going to be. So things like hemianopia, you're usually talking about possibly a more large vessel occlusion. There may be cognitive area things involved in there as well. But if you're just picking off speech or just picking off uh, neglect, we're talking about a, usually a lot more distal clot or a well-compensated large vessel occlusion. So we've just got to be clear about where they are in the context of other comorbidities, illness that we call that a disabling symptom. So I think that's an important thing to think about is the context of that disabling symptom before necessarily just saying aphasia, you thrombolize all the time or hemianopia, you thrombolize all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a couple of things which I thought particularly important to mention here. And this is the, the common pitfalls that you might encounter when you're assessing these patients. And there's a few things which uh, may become uh, relevant when you're assessing these patients. So I thought maybe, Paul, we'll just do a bit of a quick fire run through some of these. The first thing I thought is patients who have had strokes in the past and they have existing neurology from previous strokes and you're in a position where you're facing what is new neurology versus what is pre-existing. I mean, my suggestion, you can uh, confirm or refute it, is is just basically getting an idea of what actually was their baseline and how much of a additional deficit do they have from that. Yeah, so this does become really problematic, actually, for, for a number of reasons. So firstly, when you're scoring on an NIHSS and you've got a other problem which is making you score on that NIHSS, should it be counted, I guess is one thing that we could be saying. And I guess if we go back to that, is it severely disabling, if it is additional to the problem that they had and is resulting in an NIHSS over four and therefore likely disabling, then it probably is a relevant thrombolizable lesion. So I guess it's not just about the extra score, although you do need to take that into consideration. It's also about what that means as a whole for that person. The bigger challenge is decompensation of old stroke symptoms. And I think that's what you were alluding to there. And, and that can be particularly difficult and comes down to our usually poor discharge summary um, documentation as well, because essentially what you need to know is what symptoms they had from their original stroke. You need to know that there's a definite causative factor that has made them worse. So I guess if we take that scenario first, you will never pick up extra neurology that you never had initially. So a decompensation of stroke is the symptoms that you had that are worse after recovery, not, say, picking up an extra hemianopia or picking up a new speech deficit that you didn't have with your right-sided weakness before. So even if it makes territorial sense, you can't pick up new neurology from decompensation. It is worsening of those symptoms so if there is extra bits, that is considered a, a new stroke, whereas the challenge is trying to find, and before you're speaking to the stroke consultant, obviously these are time-critical situations, so if you can't find it, don't go digging for half an hour on various electronic records. But what you really need to try and find is not necessarily what happened during the admission, but what did they present with with their stroke, whether the patient might know that or it might be written down on any sort of electronic record. We need to know. And often they'll have an NIHSS form which you can compare it to. And if it's looking very similar, that does raise alarm bells about whether that person should be for thrombolysis or not. 
But what you also need is a clear thing that's decompensating and you're going to have to make that call clinically without any of the bloods or anything back yet. But if it's exactly the same symptoms, that's certainly something that you should consider. I guess the converse of that is you're saying a clot has gone up exactly the same motorway to the exact same area of the brain and knocking off another bit of brain aside of that that was being used as sort of compensation for the original deficit, which is certainly possible. And I've definitely seen that happen. And I've definitely made that call wrong in the past. But I think when armed with the knowledge, you're a lot more likely to make a better decision. And I think that should be the the goal there is and especially if you've got anyone else who is able to do that for you whilst you're assessing, that will greatly help your decision making at the end of it or the person who's on the end of the phone or whoever you're referring to, they will need to know that information to make a, a clear decision on that. Yeah, fantastic. And I, I know that I've found that really difficult myself when managing these types of patients is trying to figure out what's new, what's decompensated stroke symptoms and what and what in fact is new. And our next highlight is again from Dr. Paul Sellers, this time looking at the basics of thrombectomy. And this section we actually had to record twice, once directly after our discussion about thrombolysis. However, shortly after that, new national clinical guidelines for stroke came out. And so Paul was even more generous with his time, offering to go through the guidelines with us comprehensively. So I guess the things to know first are who is eligible, what the criteria are for it. Then it's thinking about what service you have locally and what you may or may not need to do within that service. And I'll try and be as broad as possible without being too local specific about these things. I guess right at the end, Sam, it may just be worth saying that a number of things that I'm about to say are currently very controversial, not controversial, they're standard. (laughs) They're not controversial. They are being debated currently and may change over time. So this podcast may become out of date in the next few years because the the, the stuff is changing very rapidly with a number of these things. So the first thing is that it needs to be a stroke, obviously, um, and it needs to not be a hemorrhagic stroke. So we're talking about ischemic stroke and we're talking about large vessel occlusion. So we're talking about carotid artery, intracranial carotid, where our biggest evidence is. We're talking about middle cerebral artery. And even in that, we're just really mainly talking about M1, but we also do do M2s. And that depends how bad things are about whether you go for those. And we're talking about basilar. We're not routinely talking about vertebral. We're not talking about posterior circulation artery. We're not talking about anterior circulation artery. I'm not saying they aren't done on occasion, when we're talking about sort of strict referral criteria, we want either intracranial carotid, middle cerebral artery, or basilar. That is your large vessel occlusion. So to prove that, you can't have a plain CT. So it absolutely makes me tear my hair out when we get a referral. We all wake up ready to go for this thrombectomy about to happen, and it's just a plain CT with a hyperdense vessel. That's not enough. We need to actually demonstrate the vessel is blocked, and we need to put contrast into the body to be able to demonstrate that. So they need to have had a CTA. A number of hospitals have problems with getting CTAs out of hours. 
it depends what your thrombectomy service is, whether it's 24 hours or whether it's an 8 till 8 or 5 till uh, 8 till 5 or whatever, about whether that is definitely indicated at night. And we'll talk about, about that in a second. But you need to have that at some point before you're making the referral. The other thing, unfortunately, or in my opinion, unfortunately, is the MRS. So all our thrombolysis trials are all in people who were very good. So then that MRS zero to two category, we have expanded that where we now thrombolize the majority of people. But with thrombectomy, we have a difficult service to get. And therefore, it is rationed and our evidence is very clear. We only have evidence that this really works in the MRS category of zero to two. So it's again about just knowing that category of disability and knowing where two and three sits because they're very subtle changes. So they need to be good and independent. Any age can be 100 and an MRS of two, but you know there's no age cut off because we've got quite good evidence that the older patients do benefit just as much as long as they are functionally independent at the time of presentation. Your NIHSS needs to be slightly more. We've got slightly different trials saying with slightly different cutoffs, but nice have put us with a nice round number of six. So we've got needs to be a stroke, large vessel occlusion, MRS of two, and an NIHSS of six and above. They're the main bits that you need. And that will take you up to about six hours. So from onset of stroke to six hours, all you need is the CT and CTA and those criteria, and you're good to go as long as it looks favorable. If the timing goes past six hours, or in some centers past 12 hours, we're then talking about penumbra. And as we've said, some people, when that clot hits, you get a big area of brain that dies fairly quickly. Some people have lots of collaterals that are managed to get loads of blood around those different arteries, those different A roads, and they can keep that penumbra alive sometimes for days. And they can keep a very large penumbra. So they've got symptoms of a stroke. They look like a big tax, but they are... The brain is still functioning, so they've got electrical failure of those cells, but they've got enough blood to be able to perfuse the brain that it's kept alive. And that flow criteria, that difference between flow of electrical failure and cell death is, is, you know, it's a small difference between the two. So we need to be able to work out who those patients are. As I said, in the 0-6 hours, it's very rare that we would have that huge core. So as long as there is no big stroke on CT, i.e., We've got the timings wrong. That's all you need. Past six hours, you often need more advanced imaging. And where the evidence comes from is there was a Dawn Diffuse trial that looked at either MRI perfusion or CT perfusion to work out. And essentially, I won't go into the details of that because it's not relevant for medical reg. Very fascinating. But essentially, it's talking about have you got enough flow to the brain in that area past the clot for your brain to survive. If you do and you've got salvageable brain, we should probably take the clot out. And that's what it comes down to. In a lot of centres, there is evidence that we don't necessarily need that imaging up to 12 hours. We've got trials that show we can do it with plain CTs up to 12 hours. So in our centre, we'll take people up to 12 hours as long as the imaging looks favourable without advanced imaging. But past the 12 hours, you often do need it, although that is one of the controversies we should speak about later on. So just to recap, you need a stroke, you need a large vessel occlusion demonstrated on CTA, you need your plain CT to check there's no big stroke damage, 
up to six hours, that's all you need as long as your MRS is two and your NIHSS is over six. And then after six hours, you will either need to do it in-house if it's that sort of centre where you do CT perfusion, or if it's a sort of satellite area, you may need to send those to the thrombectomy centre to get the CT perfusion to be able to work out whether it is a viable procedure to do. Yeah, I guess my, my question was, is the CT perfusion something you're able to perform at your base centre if you're not in a tertiary centre and then it can be uh, somehow processed at the tertiary centre or is it something, is it required to be a whole new run of imaging? Uh, so if you're doing CT with contrast, it's just phases. So essentially they just take lots of pictures as the contrast goes in and we can work out flow and how long it takes to get there and volume by all of those measures. It's a very clever test. Um, so theoretically, any center could do it, even your small little DGH, as long as they can do a CTA, CTA and the ability to take lots of CT images, they could do it. The problem is, is the analysis of it and sending all of those images over. So lots of places use software. So all the trials use software as well, Rapid being the main one, uh, which will work it out for you and tell you whether there's a number or not. A lot of centres don't. Our centre doesn't. So we don't know where does the CT perfusion. We bring all theoretically possible ones based on the CT, CTA over to do the CTP to make the final decision. But that is very variable across the country. Lots of places, yes, you would do the CTP at the referring unit and then make the decision from that point. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a whole set of new CTs. I guess the main thing for the listeners will be that overnight what responsibility would you have to try and arrange additional imaging unless you're a stroke registrar overnight something you're probably not familiar enough with to ask specifically for overnight no so i get it it should be in a guideline so your hospital should have that that guideline and protocol so some centers will do the ctp it's automated software and if it looks viable then they will be referred into the the tertiary center for thrombectomy some it's just all potential ones i under 24 hours with all the things that we've just mentioned would then be referred i guess it is important at this point thinking about well actually what the practical what do i actually have to do as a medical reg to work this out so we've just get all the information as we've just mentioned but the scans It's slightly tricky depending on whether you have a 24-hour service or not. So, for example, a large vessel occlusion, really we want to know that that's still occluded up to the point of referral. So if your centre is working 9 till 5, you will probably need that CTA. So anyone who is theoretically possible for having a large vessel occlusion, which is essentially any stroke with an NIHSS of over six in a 24-hour window should probably get a CT and has an MRS of two or less, should get a CTA early in the morning, so a couple of hours giving them time to report it before your centre opens. So that would be the normal thing if you don't have a 24-hour service available in your referring hospital is you probably want a repeat CT if it's been more than four hours since your first CT to check about whether there's a lot of damage there at the time, but at the same time, a CTA right before your referral centre opens, especially if they've been thrombolysed, because thrombolysis does work. It does actually, you know, it does sometimes get rid of the clot. So uh, it's not always still present when we repeat the CTA. If it's 24 hours, you just get it all done at the time of doing the CT 
a presentation when people come in. And again, it depends which centre you work in with how much you have to discuss that and who you have to discuss it with. We've managed to get a protocol which streamlines that. So any serious possibility of a stroke will get a CT and CTA as long as they're not clearly MRS of four or five. But some centres you may need to then discuss the CTA with the on-call radiologist or telemedicine or whatever hospital you have. And I guess it's just making sure you direct that energy so you do it when it's needed, which is not at the time of presentation unless you've got a 24-hour service. It's before you're referring, not at the point of presentation. Next up, it's consultant hepatologist Dr. Phil Berry. Phil was a fantastic guest in the same way what he doesn't know about chronic liver disease probably is not worth knowing. Most critically for this station is the abdominal examination and there's no one better experienced than Phil to talk us through how to do it well. So listen to Phil give us the lowdown on astutely examining the abdomen of a patient with chronic liver disease. Now it comes to the actual point where we come to palpate the abdomen. And I think this is something which a lot of PACES candidates really struggle to do without sufficient experience of examining abdomens on a routine basis. And this is where your your practice of uh, examining pathological abdomens with organomegaly is really going to, to come in. The examination routine is, is well documented. You're going to palpate generally for tenderness, but palpating for masses is going to be most important here. So Phil, I wonder if you can give us your, your best tips with regard, particularly for palpating for organomegaly, which is going to really make or break our, our listeners' stations, because I think this is going to be a pretty a hard sign where potentially missing it could spell disaster for the station if you report this incorrectly. So what would your advice be with regard to the best tips for reliably and consistently correctly palpating for, for organomegaly? I mean, the challenge is maintaining your attention on what your hands are feeling while maintaining your attention on the patient and, and being considerate to the patient. So you don't want to dive in. You don't want to have your, your eyes on the back of your hands and missing the wincing, you know, wide open eyes of the, of the worried or uncomfortable patient. So that takes practice and that takes, you know, some time to become natural there. But at the end of the day, you want to be able to pick up what your hands are feeling and believe what your hands are feeling. If you feel something, it's probably there. You know, it's not, if there's something hard underneath the skin, then then believe what you're feeling. So start with making sure the patient's comfortable and exposed to a reasonable, um, you know, with, with the clothing down, down to the hips. Make sure they're in a decent position. Tell them what you're going to do. Um, and start with light palpation in all four quadrants. That is to make sure they're not tender and also to give you a, a general feeling as to where you're going with this examination because you'll already feel some fullness in the right upper quadrant if there's gross hepatomegaly or more generally if there's splenomegaly or other masses. Then go for a deeper palpation in all four quadrants. You get lots of advice about how often you should palpate. You know, I think two or three times um, two or three passes with your hand because otherwise it just looks like you're you're not sure and and you're not picking up any further information and you do want to be somewhat slick at this and then having done all four quadrants and not picked up any obvious abnormalities usually um, you'll be zoning in on the organomegaly itself and the place to start is with the liver and that's where you place your hand 
down in the right lower quadrant, nice and low, to make sure you don't accidentally put your hand on top of the liver and then move up, in which case you'll never feel the edge. So you gently depress and you gently pull your, your, the edge of your hand upwards towards the ribcage and ask the patient to breathe in. And you keep on doing that, moving up a centimeter or two at a time until you get up to the up to the costal margin. And if there is a liver edge, it should come down and meet the edge of your finger as you're doing that when the patient breathes in. And um, that's where you need to be keeping your eye on the patient because if they do have hepatomegaly, it could be tender and they might wince when you touch it. Could be gallbladder as well, of course, less likely. Um, if there was a, a gallbladder in a jaundice patient, then you'd be thinking um, of, um, of Courvoisier's sign, which is uh, gallbladder distension in painless jaundice. Then if you do hit a liver edge, you need to characterize it quite quickly. It's usually going to be smooth in a liver disease patient. The, the knobbly, um, irregular liver in cirrhosis is quite usually small, but it is sometimes large. If you feel irregularity of the liver border, think about malignancy, um, but that is probably less likely in an exam. And then having f- felt the liver edge, you need to trace it um, to, to work out the extent and does it go to the midline, does it go beyond, and just swiftly characterize the shape of the liver. I mean, normally, although it's not part of palpation, I would, in the interest of slickness, I would begin to think about percussing over the um, over the rib cage when you've picked up hepatomegaly. So come down from the uh, from the breast area and percuss down until you get dullness, and that'll give you some sense of where the liver starts. Having done the liver, you will then think about the spleen, um, and that's where you start in the same place as you did for the liver in the right lower quadrant, but you move up diagonally towards the left upper quadrant um, and you ask the patient to breathe in. And it's worth going to the effort of asking the patient to roll over onto their right side um, so that it makes the spleen fall down towards you. Splenomegaly is quite unusual and it would normally be seen in a a haematology type patient, I think, um, rather than a liver patient. Palpable splenomegaly and cirrhosis is quite unusual. There's usually something else going on. Obviously, while you're in the abdomen, you will think about examining for the kidneys as well and thinking about um, confirming ascites by eliciting shifting dullness, uh, where you determine the, the level of fluid and then you ask the patient to roll towards you, roll away from you, sorry, and see if it becomes uh, resonant as the fluid falls down to the to the lower part of the abdomen. But that's how I do it. The general clue is to to keep thinking about the patient, though, talk to them, make it look natural, make sure you're not causing pain. Yeah, absolutely. It would be a, a real shame to you know pick up the marks for the uh, for the correct detection of signs and then lose it on patient welfare instead because you've made the patient uh, you've made the patient uncomfortable. Absolutely right. Um, and so you'll uh, palpate for uh, all of the uh, all of the organs as Phil's mentioned. Check for shifting dullness, and then uh, you'll come to listen to the abdomen. You'll auscultate. I don't think, well, I can't think of anything in particular that I'd be auscultating for, particularly with regard to chronic liver disease, Phil. Yeah, uh, it's it's normally classically over the liver to see if there's um, any sort of um, hum from a, a very well vascularized tumor. Again, vanishingly unusual, but it is part of the formal examination. You, if you had a patient, you know, with an acute abdomen and thinking about bowel obstruction, obviously you would 
um, listen to the abdomen as well to see if there are any bowel sounds or any tinkling sounds. But this is where it's quite difficult for candidates. If they're not 100% sure what the point of the case is, and you normally would be from the suggestions that are made, then you need to, how far do you tailor your examination? Um, you don't want to do things that are completely irrelevant to the direction the examination is going in. Um, but as long as there's a justification for it, that's fine. And I think it's reasonable to auscultate over the liver, although, as I say, very unusual to find a, a positive thing there. Um, just going back to the liver, it's worth bearing in mind what we said at the beginning about heart failure and right heart failure. In theory, you might detect um, a pulsatile liver edge and you might be able to elicit a hepatojugular reflex um, if you press up on the liver gently but firmly and see if the JVP changes and becomes more prominent. And I, I think that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do um, if you've got that suspicion. Next up, we have cardiology registrar and fellow in electrophysiology, Dr. Alex Carpenter. I really enjoyed having Alex on as a guest. He is an absolute font of knowledge, particularly for people like me, more junior cardiology registrars. And he brought a huge amount of value to this episode of the podcast where we discussed palpitations. And one of the most critical things about approaching this type of patient is the choice of cardiac rhythm monitoring device. And so Alex talked us through that really nicely in this next clip. And I think this is of huge value, not just to PACES candidates, but also to junior cardiology registrars and the medical registrar on call who might encounter these patients. We're going to go back to our broad brushstrokes approach. We're going to talk about the general uh, principles of investigating management and i want to draw the listeners attention to one particular phrase which i think is so uh, critically important that it needs some sort of klaxon uh, to it which i may well put it in post-production but that is um rhythm symptom correlation so alex can you just uh, if you can talk to us about rhythm symptom correlation and then maybe give us a, a, an insight into the various forms of ambulatory cardiac monitoring devices which are available to us to to try and obtain rhythm symptom correlation yeah absolutely yeah. i mean it's so it is so important because again the symptoms of palpitation the symptom of palpitations is can be quite nebulous so it's, it's really important to try and record that patient's ECG while they're experiencing the symptom they're talking about because if they experience the symptoms while they're experiencing a normal heart rhythm, you can be reassured that actually it may be anxiety related. It may be that they've got, you know, there's a, there's an overlay of, of anxiety and at times they're experiencing palpitations, but at times it's it's more of a perception of palpitations. Again, you can correlate what they're saying to a run of ectopy, you know, single ectopics, um, or a very short run of ectopics, that's very reassuring. But but that can be a number of things. That can be somebody seeing you in clinic saying, when I'm in AF, I feel really unwell, like I do now. Look at their 12 lead, there and then. We know that single ECGs are very bad at spotting paroxysms and arrhythmia, sort of, you know, 3 to 7% detecting AF. And even Holter, 24-hour tapes are quite poor, uh, quite poor at detecting things like AF. I mean, having said that, when people talk about daily symptoms, so palpitations uh, caused by ectopy, for example, 24-hour tapes can be really helpful if they're getting them every day. And I'll ask them, you know, just take a typical day, do what you normally do to provoke your symptoms. If you normally get them, you know, going for a run, go for a run. Often start with a 24-hour halter monitor. You know, these days, a lot of people have smartwatches, Apple watches and that sort of thing. And, you know, there are various brands of ambulatory 
devices that um, people either oft, often have, or if we've done a bit of investigation and we're reassured, but we say, oh, you know, maybe you could pick one of these, you know, I think they used to be called a live core card here devices, pick one of them up. And if you get a typical episode, record it and send it into our arrhythmia nurses, they filter through, you know, and often when we're, you know, when I'm looking through a case, I'll be looking through 20, 30, 40 of these, you know, uh, emails in with with strips. And they can be really helpful because they often show you what the patient's experiencing and that's the total burden of the patient's sort of symptoms. And sometimes there'll be one or two true paroxysmal arrhythmias in there, lots and lots of sinus, uh, lots and lots of um, ectopy in there. So that helps you firstly get a diagnosis, but also set the expectations to the patient that, okay, maybe you are having AF, but the vast majority of your symptoms are actually actually a normal heart rhythm. And sinus tachycardia is incredibly uncommon. And and again, there's a bit of a debate as to what to what extent that's pathological. People talk about inappropriate sinus tachycardia. POTS, again, that's quite a contentious area, but it's not uncommon that we do an EP study and it's actually a sinus tachycardia. When we give the patient isoprenaline, you know, that synthetic adrenaline, that totally recreates their symptoms, but they are in a sinus tachycardia. They might be young. They might be having incredibly rapid sinus tachycardia. Again, for patients that we're a bit more concerned about, so patients who have had a syncope, for example, patients who are at risk of sudden cardiac death, so say a first-degree relative or a, of, a, of a patient who's had a cardiac arrest or, a, or something else that puts them at risk but doesn't have a clear ICD indication. So say, for example, somebody's got a, a spontaneous type 1 Brigado pattern on their ECG or a long QT, but they're asymptomatic, you'd consider more continuous monitoring. So implantable loop recorders, something that we use very commonly, particularly in syncope. They've got a really good evidence base. This is something that's implanted just under the skin. It takes about 10 minutes to do with a bit of local anaesthetic. They last for up to three years. Again, on an examination of a patient, you'd see a scar somewhere on their left precordium and it normally angled down towards the cardiac apex. And they give you a, they give you a single lead ECG. Uh, they can be very helpful. They can either be activated by the patient or their event triggered by various algorithms and they last for up to three years before the battery runs out. And then the final sort of symptom rhythm correlation that we can often do is is via device. So patients that already have devices and different devices are better or worse at re- recording events and often ICDs will be slightly more sophisticated, but they can be very useful at, at recording arrhythmia. What to do with it can be a difficult question. Device-selected AF is a contentious issue. Um, but they do give you another source of information. Well, listeners, that wraps up our best of 2023. I think it's fair to say we have had some absolutely fantastic, engaging, intelligent guests who have been able to put over so much of their knowledge through the podcast. And I am hugely grateful to them giving up some time to help educate all of us about their respective specialties but as we kick off 2024 we look forward to even more fantastic guests coming on the podcast giving you the best opportunity to pass your paces or even improve your own clinical practice it's been an absolute joy bringing together these for you and it always makes me so grateful to not only have these fantastic guests to learn from but also to all of you at home for listening throughout the year i look forward to more of you listening in 2024 and I sincerely hope that you found the podcast helpful. But listeners, that is just about all the time we've got for this first show of 2024. Please don't forget to like, follow or subscribe to the podcast or leave a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast. If you really want to go above and beyond and support the show, you can do that at buymeacoffee.com slash podcast. For those of you who are going to the Paces Ahead course uh, in the middle of January, starting the 16th, I will see you there. 
please do come up and say hello if you uh, catch me it'll be really great to chat about your paces preparation and of course take on any advice or suggestions you have for the podcast but for now we are just about out of time i have been dr sam williams thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time on the pre paces podcast